Hi, I'm Dr. Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com, and you're watching Masterclass with Masterjohn. Today we're in our fourth in a series of lessons on the system of energy metabolism. Ketogenic diet has neurological benefits. Why do we have to eat such an enormous amount of food? science, clear explanations. Class is starting now. In the last lesson, we looked at cellular respiration in a general overview, which we broke into the citric acid cycle, also known as the TCA cycle, and the electron transport chain. Now we're going to start looking at the details, but we're not going to look at every glorious detail at once. Instead, what we're going to do is pick apart the details one by one, take our time and elaborate on that detail to understand why it's important to the system as a whole and to relate it in some way to some topic of human health. In this lesson, what we're going to do is look at the first couple of steps of the citric acid cycle and relate them to the topic of how the cell organizes its energy metabolism according to its own abilities to handle that energy load. And we'll relate that to the human health topic of insulin resistance, glucose intolerance, and the development of diabetes. Let's begin by looking at the citric acid molecule, after which the citric acid cycle is named. As a brief review to make sure we're all on the same page, life is made of carbon, and since most organic molecules that are present in life are hydrocarbons, meaning they're mostly made of carbon and hydrogen, we show their structures in an abbreviated form where we don't explicitly draw the carbons and hydrogens most of the time. So if you look at the citric acid molecule, you assume that any points where the lines intersect, such as this point right here, represents a carbon. Carbon has four binding sites, and you can see this carbon is bound to a carbon here, two carbons on either side, and to the oxygen. And since its binding sites are full, we don't infer anything else there. But when we see a carbon like this one, which is bound to a carbon on either side, we see that two binding sites are filled, two aren't. We assume or infer that there's two hydrogens bound to that carbon that are also not explicitly depicted. The pattern that we want to look for in this molecule is a carboxyl group. A carboxyl group is a C, double bound to an O, bound to an OH. Carboxyl groups tend to ionize, which means that the H tends to leave the molecule. When it does, the H has a positive charge, the O has a negative charge. The positively charged H, the hydrogen ion, is what contributes to acidity. When we say something's really acidic, we mean there's lots of free hydrogen ions. Because a carboxyl group tends to ionize that hydrogen ion, anything with a carboxyl group is a carboxylic acid. If you look at citrate, you see one, two, three carboxyl groups so citric acid 
is a tricarboxylic acid. Citric acid is the first molecule that we make in the citric acid cycle. Because citric acid is a tricarboxylic acid, we also call that cycle the tricarboxylic acid cycle. And we abbreviate that the TCA cycle. But we're not done. Adolf Hans Krebs discovered the citric acid cycle and was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for that discovery in 1953. Because of him, we also call it the Krebs cycle. I had a student once who just called this the cycle. I think she was onto something. Nevertheless, we should be really grateful for this rare moment in biochemistry where we have one thing that only has four different names. Usually in biochemistry, we take one thing and we come up with as many different names for it as humanly possible. The citric acid cycle is like a rotary or a traffic circle. In a rotary, you can get on one exit and then you can either get off or you can continue on the rotary and get off at a different exit. Someone else may have gotten on at a different exit than you did, but they may get off the exit that you came on. We're mostly talking right now about the citric acid cycle in the context of energy metabolism. So we talk about acetyl groups coming in the form of acetyl-CoA, coenzyme A drops them off at the cycle, and they get off the exit of ATP production. But we could also talk about amino acids coming on at a different exit. And we could burn them for energy if they get off the exit at ATP production. But those amino acids could come into the cycle and they could get off at a different exit where they make different amino acids. Or amino acids could come into the cycle and make glucose through the process of gluconeogenesis. So the citric acid cycle isn't just important to energy metabolism, it's also the metabolic hub of the cell. The cycle that allows the interconversion of many other substances in the cell, especially the conversion of some amino acids to other amino acids, and especially the conversion of amino acids to glucose during times of glucose deprivation. The first step in the TCA cycle is the condensation of oxaloacetate, abbreviated OAA, with acetyl-CoA to generate citrate. The diagram on the screen shows how this happens in more detail. Oxaloacetate, shown in blue, has two carboxyl groups, unlike citrate, which has three. It condenses with acetyl-CoA shown in pink to make citril-CoA. Just as the acetyl group of acetyl-CoA is the acyl group that corresponds to acetic acid, the citril group of citril-CoA is the acyl group that corresponds to citric acid. And just like we talked about in a previous lesson, that we could hydrolyze the acetyl group from CoA to get acetic acid, we can hydrolyze the citral group 
from citral-CoA to make citric acid. When we do that, water, shown in green, is split up into the H that regenerates the sulfhydryl group of CoA, CoA leaves, and what's left over from water is the OH that becomes the OH of citric acid's third carboxyl group. And because carboxyl groups ionize, this is shown as an O negative in green and an H positive in green as well. In many cases in cellular metabolism, we directly add a carboxyl group to something and we call it a carboxylation reaction. This is not a carboxylation reaction. What we're doing is synthesizing a carboxyl group in two steps. The first step is a condensation reaction, which means two things just simply come together. And the second reaction is hydrolysis. That leads to a two-step synthesis of a carboxyl group, one step coming from the addition of the acetyl group, the other step adding the OH of water to the acetyl group to finish making the carboxyl group. Once we've made citrate, the next step is to isomerize it to form isocitrate. If you have a chemistry background, you understand what an isomer is in more detail, but for the purposes of this discussion, we can just say that isomerization is a rearrangement of the atoms in the molecule. And if you look at citrate, you see the OH is on the tertiary or third carbon. If you look at isocitrate, it's moved to the secondary or second carbon. The way we've done that is to just flip the OH with the H between these two carbons by taking them all off as water and then taking water and adding it back on in the reverse configuration. In the middle, where water has temporarily left the mo molecule, we're left with aconitic acid or aconitate, or more specifically, cis-aconitate, which just refers to the specific arrangement around the double bond. Because cis-aconitate is an intermediate, we call the enzyme that catalyzes this aconitase. Now, for the purposes of our discussion, we don't really care that much about the cis-aconitate intermediate. In later lessons, we're gonna talk about why it's really, really, really important to have moved the OH group from the third carbon to the second, but for this discussion, we don't care about that. What we care about is the enzyme aconitase and how it controls a key checkpoint in the citric acid cycle that allows the cell to regulate the activity of that cycle according to its own abilities to burn citric acid for energy and how this allows the cell to decide whether to burn citric acid for energy or to store it as fat. Before we talk about the role of aconitase, let's talk in general how the cell makes the decision to store energy as fat instead of using it to make ATP. Acetyl-CoA lies at the intersection of all anabolic and catabolic reactions. When 
we break things down to burn them for energy, we turn them into acetyl-CoA, and the acetyl-CoA enters the citric acid cycle. But when we build things up into larger molecules, we tend to start with acetyl-CoA. We may be synthesizing vitamin D, or cholesterol, or sex hormones, or fatty acids. All of those are going to start with the acetyl group of acetyl-CoA. Since the cell can use acetyl-CoA to burn it for energy, or to build it up into other things, or to store it as fat, it has to have a way of organizing what it does with it. And it achieves this organization by compartmentalizing the catabolic breakdown of acetyl-CoA for ATP production to the mitochondrion, and the anabolic synthesis of fatty acids to the cytosol. All acetyl-CoA is initially generated in the mitochondrion. And the default assumption is that you're gonna burn it for energy. But cytosolic acetyl-CoA is the substrate for fatty acid synthesis. Having this compartmentalization is really important. Imagine what would happen if acetyl-CoA was generated through the breakdown of fatty acids in the cytosol, and then simultaneously it was used in the anabolic synthesis of fatty acids right there in the cytosol. What you would do is you'd break down fatty acids and build them up. Break them down and build them up. Break them down and build them up. Break them down and build them up. You see where I'm going with this. Let's say you did that 50,000 times. You started with one fatty acid. What did you finish with? One fatty acid. Where did you get? Nowhere. That's called a feudal cycle. Feudal because you didn't get anywhere. But actually, you're not net-net zero things happening. If you recall from the first lesson, no matter what we do, whether it's breaking things down or building them up, we always have to release some heat into the atmosphere. So if we take a fatty acid, break it down and build it up again 50,000 times, we've lost a lot of heat. Well, that's great if your goal is to get warmer because you're cold. And in fact, one of the responses to cold is for thyroid hormone to stimulate feudal cycling in the cell as a means of simply generating more heat. But the cell has to have that as a choice. The cell can't, by default, always be feudal cycling because that would be profoundly wasteful. So the compartmentalization of catabolic breakdown of acetyl-CoA in the mitochondrion and anabolic synthesis with acetyl-CoA in the cytosol is a way of preventing feudal cycling. Now, there are several reasons that we wouldn't want the transport of acetyl-CoA to be the fundamental event that allows the cell to make that decision. One of them is because when acetyl-CoA accumulates in the mitochondrion, it's actually the event that initiates ketogenesis. We'll talk about that in a later lesson. For now, let's note the fact that coenzyme A, as we talked about previously, is absolutely massive compared to the acetyl group. Coenzyme A is the train, acetate is the passenger. Because CoA is so big, it's not all that easy to cross it across the mitochondrial membrane 
So instead, when we want to take those acetyl groups and use them to synthesize fatty acids, what we do is first make citrate and we use the citrate to cross the membrane. Citrate accumulating in the mitochondrion is the biochemical event that initiates fatty acid synthesis. The way it does that is when citrate accumulates, that is the stimulus for citrate moving from the mitochondrion to the cytosol. Cytosolic citrate is the source of cytosolic acetyl-CoA. Cytosolic acetyl-CoA is the substrate for fatty acid synthesis. The role of aconitase is to control the accumulation of citrate according to reactive oxygen species made by the mitochondrion. Shown on the screen is a brief description of how reactive oxygen species are made. Ordinarily in the electron transport chain, oxygen gets reduced with two electrons and two hydrogens for each atom of the oxygen molecule. So an oxygen molecule containing two oxygens in total is gonna accept four electrons and four hydrogens to become two molecules of water. But there's a process called electron leak where electrons, instead of going all the way through the chain to be properly processed into water, start to leak out. And maybe just one electron gets added to oxygen. And when one electron gets added to oxygen, what we have is the formation of superoxide. Superoxide, because it has one electron added to it, has a negative charge. More significantly, it has an unpaired electron symbolized by the dot. All electrons exist in pairs, and they have a very strong desire to stay that way. Desire in air quotes. If you have an unpaired electron, as in this case, that electron has a voracious appetite to find another electron and become paired. Or to leave the molecule entirely for another molecule where it can pair up with another electron. So superoxide doesn't last very long in the cell. It very quickly takes on an additional electron to pair up this unpaired one, and two hydrogen ions to become H2O2, or hydrogen peroxide. Because you've added an additional electron, hydrogen peroxide is not a free radical, and it's far less reactive than superoxide. Even still, hydrogen peroxide is still only partially reduced. It still wants more electrons and more hydrogen ions so that it can become water, and it's still really, really reactive. Since both of these molecules want to continue to be reduced so that they can make their way to water, a much more stable compound, they're both strong oxidizing agents. We talked before about iron, sulfur, and copper in the electron transport chain. And we said that these are redox reactive metals that easily gain and lose electrons, so electrons tend to jump from one to the next through the electron transport chain, and that's what allows us to derive energy from food to make ATP. Well, the enzyme aconitase also 
has an iron-sulfur cluster. Its value is also that iron and sulfur are redox-reactive metals that can easily gain and lose electrons. If oxygen didn't get all of the electrons it should have in the electron transport chain and is still hungry for electrons, then superoxide or more likely hydrogen peroxide, since one is quickly converted to the other, will oxidize the iron-sulfur cluster of aconitase in order to get those additional electrons. The oxidation of the iron-sulfur cluster of aconitase inhibits the enzyme. If you inhibit aconitase, you prevent citrate from becoming isocitrate. If you do that, citrate accumulates. The accumulation of citrate is the stimulus for the translocation of citrate from the mitochondrion to the cytosol. The translocation of citrate into the cytosol is the biochemical event that initiates fatty acid synthesis because, like we said before, cytosolic citrate is the source of, of cytosolic acetyl-CoA. Cytosolic acetyl-CoA is the substrate for fatty acid synthesis. That means that aconitase is the checkpoint that allows the cell to decide whether citrate gets broken down for energy or gets turned into fat. The electron transport chain always produces some superoxide, and that's always going to mostly become hydrogen peroxide. Under most conditions, 0.1% to 0.5% of the oxygen will be converted to superoxide instead of water. But that production increases when the mitochondrion is overburdened with energy demands. So if too much energy is coming into the electron transport chain, then the production of reactive oxygen species increases above normal. Because they're always produced, there's always some background level that's setting the tone for how much citrate gets by aconitase into the electron transport chain. Under conditions of too much energy or too many demands placed on the mitochondrion, more reactive oxygen species lead to more aconitase inhibition than normal and greater than normal fatty acid synthesis. Now, it may be the case that if you prevent the citrate from coming into the electron transport chain, you remove the excess burden on the electron transport chain, reactive oxygen species go back down to normal, aconitase inhibition goes back down to normal, and the relative flux of citrate for ATP production versus fatty acid synthesis goes back to normal. But if that's not sufficient, to remove the burden on the mitochondrion, hydrogen peroxide will escape the mitochondrion and go to the cytosol. In the cytosol, it inhibits glucose transporters in the cell membrane and prevents the uptake of glucose from the blood into the cell. It also inhibits voltage-gated voltage anion channels in the mitochondrial membrane, which are an important part of the system that interacts with another transporter called carnitine. That system together is what allows fatty acids to enter the mitochondrion 
where they get broken down into acetyl-CoA. As a result, hydrogen peroxide prevents glucose from coming into the cell and fatty acids from entering the mitochondrion. Hydrogen peroxide also acts on the nucleus and the mitochondrion to increase the expression of genes related to two things. One is mitochondrial biogenesis, which means making more mitochondria. The other is antioxidant defense. Together, that means that you can burn more energy and you can burn the energy more cleanly. Overall, we could see this as a suite of responses to an imbalance in energy metabolism, where when cellular energy load exceeds the capacity of the mitochondria to handle that energy, the electron transport chain makes more reactive oxygen species. The first thing they do is take the energy you have and store it as fat instead of making ATP from it. If that's not sufficient, they decrease your uptake of glucose and the entry of fatty acids into the mitochondrion. They also increase the number of mitochondria and the antioxidant defense that allows mitochondria to burn energy more cleanly. Overall, this looks very much like a positive adaptive response to energy metabolism that allows the cell to prevent energy from coming into the mitochondrion at a rate that exceeds the mitochondrial capacity, and when that happens, to increase mitochondrial capacity. Despite the fact that reactive oxygen species seem to be playing a critical essential role in allowing cells to control their own energy metabolism, there's also compelling evidence that they play a role in glucose intolerance and insulin resistance, which are the hallmarks of diabetes. Shown on the screen is an experiment where animals were fed a standard chow or a high-fat diet, abbreviated HF. I'm gonna call this diet an obesogenic diet because there's more things about it than it's just high in fat that cause it to produce obesity in the animals that eat it. So the animals that eat these obesogenic diets get fat, and because of that, they get metabolic dysfunction that looks a lot like diabetes. They also had a group of animals that got the obesogenic diet plus a synthetic antioxidant targeted to the mitochondria that's designed to prevent the accumulation of mitochondrial hydrogen peroxide. On the left panel, you see the results of an experiment where they took the mitochondria out of the animals and then they placed increasing amounts of energy on those mitochondria. As the amount of energy provided increased, the amount of hydrogen peroxide plotted on the vertical axis also increased until it reached a plateau. If you look at the plateaus, what you see is that the standard chow controls shown in open squares had definite amounts of hydrogen peroxide produced, but the animals that got the obesogenic diet had more than twice as much hydrogen peroxide produced. However, the triangles represent the animals that got the obesogenic diet, still got fat, but also got the mitochondrial antioxidant. Their hydrogen peroxide was brought down to normal.
In the right panel, you see the results of a glucose tolerance test. Usually in humans, this would be an oral glucose tolerance test, which means that you eat the glucose and you see how much does the glucose rise in the hours after you eat it. In these animals, they injected the glucose into the tail vein, but the principle is the same. Glucose should go up in the blood and it should come back down, but the rise should be gentle. If the rise is more extreme, that means that you're somewhere on the path to pre-diabetes or to full-blown diabetes, depending on how bad it is. They also looked at insulin. The more insulin you need in response to that glucose to control blood glucose, the more insulin resistant we can say that you are. In these animals, if they just got the obesogenic diet, plasma glucose response to the glucose tolerance test was higher than normal. But if they got the antioxidant, the same one that brought hydrogen peroxide production in the mitochondrion back down to normal, the response to the glucose tolerance test was brought back down to normal. The same exact pattern happened with insulin. It was exacerbated with the obesogenic diet, but the antioxidant nullified those effects. This provides compelling experimental evidence that the metabolic dysfunction that results from an obesogenic diet is due to hydrogen peroxide production in the mitochondrion that shuts down the effects of glucose transporters. Now, this raises the question, how can we reconcile this idea that reactive oxygen species, through oxidizing the iron-sulfur cluster of aconitase, inhibiting glucose transporters, and inhibiting the voltage-gated ion channels that allow fatty acids to enter the mitochondrion, how do we reconcile the idea that that plays a central role in coordinating energy metabolism with the idea that rejecting this energy when it's trying to get into the cell is what's causing hyperglycemia. I like to draw an analogy to team sports. Let's say that there's players on the court or on the field, depending on your sport of choice. If one player is, is tired or weakened or minorly injured, you can benefit both that player and the whole team by taking that player off the field you allow that player to rest and you prevent that player from dragging down the performance of the rest of the team. But you have to substitute someone else to make that happen. If all the players are bogged down with the same burden, then you can't take them all off the field or you have to forfeit the game. Similarly, we have over a trillion cells. This thing of metabolism is a team sport. And if one of those cells decides not to take up glucose, where's that glucose gonna go? Some other one of the trillion cells is gonna take it up and use it. What if a hundred cells decide not to take up glucose? A thousand cells? Probably nothing meaningful happens. That glucose, instead of going into those cells, goes into all the other cells. What do you get? An efficient allocation of resources. You prevent some cells from getting stressed out by energy demands that they can't handle. You allow other cells to get access to the glucose that they can handle, or maybe the glucose that they really, really, 
really need. But if the preponderance of the cells are all deciding not to take up glucose, then there's nowhere for that glucose to go except into the blood. That causes hyperglycemia, and the pancreas is going to try to control the higher and higher levels of glucose with more and more insulin. That leads to hyperinsulinemia and insulin resistance. So it's not the reactive oxygen species' fault. It's not aconitase's fault or even the fault of its iron cluster. It's not the fault of the glucose transporters or the voltage-gated ion channels. It's not the fault of anything except the context. What you have is a normal physiological response to a pathological context of whole-body, system-wide energy overload. So this is how the cell regulates its energy metabolism according to its abilities to make ATP. In the next lesson, we're going to look at how the cell coordinates its energy metabolism according to its needs for ATP. The audio of this lesson was generously enhanced and post-processed by Bob Devodian of Torian Mixing, giving you strong sound and dependable quality. You can find more of his work at torianonlinemixing.com. If you want to keep watching these lessons, you can follow them on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash chrismasterjohn or on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash chrismasterjohn or on my website at chrismasterjohnphd.com slash biochemistry where you can also find the slides and transcripts. I hope you found this both enjoyable and useful. Signing off, this is Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com. You've been watching Masterclass with Masterjohn, and I will see you in the next lesson.